whether the church is a building and the traditions built there. What's she going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Cain in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg. As I mentioned in the first Walk the Earth, this one now being the second, some of the questions that we're going to face are going to be very easy, and I would describe this one as one of the easier questions. But it helps me to do a couple of things. First, talk a little bit about one of the challenges in looking for a new church home, and second, offer perhaps a little more explanation as to what went wrong, what has sort of forced this transition. Is there a mistake or an issue or a fundamental misunderstanding, or an unfortunate shift in the way the church views itself? And I'm going to suggest that the answer is probably yes. But first, let me go to the question itself, whether the church can be defined as a building and the traditions built therein. And I'm going to do so by referring to what I consider to be a famous hymn. I realize it's only 1972, but when you're talking in the world of church hymnals and refer to words and music by Richard Avery and Donald Marsh, you're talking about some pretty big names. Avery and Marsh in church circles. Very, very popular. And this one from 1972 feels like it's been around my entire life. In fact, I would be a little bit disappointed if the song We Are the Church was unfamiliar to a particular Protestant congregation. At the very least, it should be familiar as a children's song or a children's hymn. And here is the first verse followed by the chorus of that song. I'm going to share it because it answers the question. The church is not a building. The church is not a steeple. The church is not a resting place. The church is the people. I am the church. You are the church. We are the church together. All who follow Jesus all around the world. Yes, we're the church together. The church is the people. A church doesn't disappear if a tornado levels the building. The church supersedes that, because the church is, as Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel, that concept of two or three people gathering in his name, gathering to do some very specific things. And as we proceed through more of these Walk the Earth podcasts, we're going to talk about what those things are that a church needs to do. Things like pray for each other and and worship in truth, praising the Lord, and reading and offering scripture, and interpreting the Bible, those sorts of things. But first, let's get out of the way what the church is not. The church is not a building. And that, while it's really, again, when you think about it, very obvious, churches don't cease to exist because, you know, a, a fire breaks out. They simply relocate into people's homes, which is probably how the early church operated to begin with. It's probably the biblical example of church. But the other thing that I think is interesting is talking about the church being the people plural and not people singular, because this to me is the answer to two questions at the same time. One is, what are one of the things or some of the things that went wrong in the church that I have left? And the other is, what are the challenges in making a new church search? 
And one of the things quickly, just to foreshadow a little bit, what I'm going to hit later in the show is that my wife has described this new church hunt as being a lot like the first day of school over and over again every single Sunday. Part of that is you don't know the people or you don't know very many of the people. The other part is that you don't know the building. And I'm going to speak somewhat nostalgically about the power of knowing the building. So it's not like a church building is a trivial matter. It's not like it doesn't play a role, but it cannot play the role. And I think sometimes we see that in congregations. And I can remember going all the way back in every church I've ever worshipped, that there have been these moments where suddenly the, the ebb and flow of who's on the trustees committee, or simply a reaction to vandalism or criminal behavior, you suddenly find that the church, which had a reputation for being always open, always unlocked, suddenly becomes completely locked down and inaccessible. The church of my youth, when I was in elementary school, had an exterior entrance to the chapel. So this very little, small chapel, not adjunct to the sanctuary like some of the churches that I've been to since then, but on its own, really next to the fellowship hall. If you were inside the fellowship hall, which is um, also a, a staged area, but rather than being an altar, it tends to be legitimately a stage where the youth might put on a pageant of some sort. If you were standing inside the fellowship hall of this church and looked to the right, there would be a closet that had no exterior door that would hold costumes and choir robes and would be a place where if you were putting on a play, you would do costume changes or stage the next entry from a transition from one scene to the next. And the other side, to the left of the stage facing it, was an, another exit, in this case stage left, into this chapel which if you were putting on a play, you could use that also as a place to do costume changes and to stage a scene change. But most of the year, this was simply a very small room, uh, smaller than your average bedroom, probably smaller than a walk-in closet in a modern, you know, newly built home would be, that had just a couple of, you know, partial pews and a little altar, some stained glass, and then people would go in there to pray at any time of the day, any day of the week. But at some point, it had to be locked down as well, because we were informed as a congregation by the police that this particular little room was being used in criminal enterprises like prostitution, potentially drug deals. So it wasn't possible for the church to always have its doors open. The church we've recently left has gone through, in the last five or six years, a couple of crises of sorts, where even though nothing was really stolen from the church, people were overreacting as if there was some kind of a theft problem. If someone would misplace an item in the kitchen, for example, and not, not put it where they got it or not put it in the right cabinet, you would suddenly have accusations of theft and, and a great deal of concern that we needed to change all the locks and that not everybody should have access to the kitchen where the utensils were. We had a situation where uh, the fellowship hall which was downstairs in this church, was going to be used for a worship service, a later in the afternoon sort of a Sunday worship service, very contemporary in its approach, very informal. And the only thing they really needed to do was move a bulletin board out of the way so that that could be used for the screen to put the lyrics up to praise songs and to put the scripture up. But in moving that bulletin board from this fellowship hall area into a classroom where it actually was going to be used by the class that was going to meet in that classroom. You know, no one no one was confused that the bulletin board was still in the property and possession of the church. 
It, there was no accusation of theft, per se. It hadn't disappeared. It hadn't been misplaced. And yet the church council had more than one conversation in more than one monthly meeting over whether or not this constituted an act of vandalism and whether the police should be called and arrest the youth leader over it. Now, this is an example of a complete misunderstanding of whether the church is the building or if the church is something both bigger than that and more fundamental than that. This I might describe as one of the early warning signs that if this misperception about what the church actually is was not corrected, was not stopped somehow, then this might be an indication that we'd be leaving this church. Because any church that confuses itself with a sacred space is missing the sacred spaces that the Holy Spirit is creating between its members and the outside world. Perhaps even getting to the point, which I believe did happen, of the church mistaking the sacred spaces that the Lord is creating between the members themselves in what should be a bond of fellowship, instead that breaking down into boundaries and pointless accusations. So the church is not a building. But if you look at the theology of this particular children's hymn, the church is also not a person. You think about it. It says, uh, essentially, I am the church, you are the church, we are the church together, all who follow Jesus all around the world. Yes, we're the church together, we, not any one individual, not a pastor, no matter how charismatic he might be not the oldest, most trusted member of the congregation who has a legacy of service stretching back for decades. The church is not a resting place. The church is not a person either. The church is the people. So what do you do if the church that you're attending suddenly begins acting as if the church, or the only thing that matters in the church, or the most important part of the church, and that's a direct quote, the most important part of the church, is one individual. It's sometimes easier to deal with that as the heresy that it is if the one individual being singled out and, and sort of praised in a kind of an idolatry is the pastor. Because I think you can call the pastor to task to represent what uh, sinful pride that is and what a form of idolatry that is. If, if he was asked to arbit the role that he's been cast in by church members versus what scripture says. But it's much more difficult to deal with, I've found, if it's somebody who isn't the pastor. What if it's a part-time staff member who doesn't even worship with the church on Sundays? What if there seems to be more passion about somebody who is ancillary to the day-to-day -day operations of the church as a member, but important to the day-to-day -day operations of the church as a staff member? Then it becomes very tricky, because I don't know exactly what you would do if somebody were to stand up in a meeting and say, you know, the church organist is the most important member of this church, that the church would not survive without the organist. Now, we all know that this would be a little bit wrong, more than just a little bit wrong, if somebody said those same words about the pastor, or the youth leader, or the secretary, or the choir director. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of what we mean when we say, what is the church? It's just as wrong, perhaps in some ways even more wrong, than saying the church is a building. At the very least, if I was having a conversation with somebody that I wanted to come experience worship with me in my church, and I implied to them through my conversation that the church was a building, 
because I needed to give them an address or give them driving directions or tell them what door to go in or tell them how to find the sanctuary once they were inside the building. You could understand how somebody might misconstrue that as me implying to them in one way or another that the church is a building. I think probably from a zoning perspective. On some level, the church, from the perspective of the government, is, is a building, perhaps. But to say that the church is really just this one staff member, this one person, even if it was one church member, even if it was the founding member of the church, it's still wrong, and you would hope that the founding member of the church would have the right perspective and the right orientation and relationship with the Lord to recognize that as wrong and call it out, to not simply sit in a meeting as a treasurer and benignly allow that this kind of praise might be conferred upon you, because after all, you're the treasurer. You almost have to leave a church that is so far afield of truth that it doesn't even understand the definition of what a church is. The biggest conflicts that I'll recall when I look back years later were things which absolutely and fundamentally don't matter today. Which classroom has that particular piece of bulletin board, that, that particular piece of cork board? Did we move the bookshelf from this part of the office to the other part of the office? You know, did somebody switch which drawer in the filing cabinet we put a particular document into? Have we, you know, refreshed and refurbished the chapel to where there's less storage being done there of artwork that we're not using right now and that that artwork is taken to perhaps the attic, which might be a more appropriate place to do storage so that the chapel is really fully functional and fully functioning as a place where a small group setting worship could take place. These things like moving extraneous artwork out of the chapel and into the attic were the source of considerable consternation. Having said that, I think that it's naive to talk about the building as being unimportant. Some of my strongest memories of churches are the church as a building. And in fact, some of my strongest memories of homes the same way. If we want to be serious about calling a church a home and using the expression, well, that is my church home, then you're going to expect there to be a certain relationship with the building. The house that we moved to when I was kind of right in the middle of junior high school, leaving one side of town in this major Midwestern city into the other side of town and really separating myself from all of my friends and all the people that I'd, I'd known since we lived there, a decision-making process had to be made about who was going to stay in each one of the upstairs bedrooms. We were moving from a small home where the house only had one floor and where it was necessary for some of the children to share bedrooms, to share space, to now moving into this new house where there was both a downstairs and an upstairs, and the downstairs was the master bedroom suite, among other things like the kitchen and the living room and all that. And the upstairs was primarily a bathroom and four bedrooms for the kids. And my older sister and I, we had what I would consider to be the normal and ordinary bedrooms. They were the bedrooms that I think had the most logical, linear path to the one shared bathroom. So that was a plus. And they were just kind of a standard rectangular shape. That was a plus. And bigger bedrooms than the bedrooms that we'd been in on the other side of town. But, you know, from a closet space perspective, nothing unusual. From a shape and size, you know, not that odd. My bedroom window overlooked the backyard. My sister's overlooked the front yard. But the other two bedrooms were very interesting. And the oldest person in our family kind of had the first dibs. There was really no question that he was the right person to put in the bedroom that was actually built 
later from this house's construction and placed over the garage, essentially taking the attic space and repurposing it into a very large bedroom, part of it with kind of a cathedral wall, sort of where the, uh, the bedroom was truly over the garage in every sense of the word. And the rest of it, having, you know, a couple of different closets, uh, one window, you know, at the end of the garage looked out over the driveway and then into the front yard and across the street. But the other one looked off to the side where we had put in a little garden and stuff. And my brother's bedroom was, was pretty cool, not just because it had so much space. That's where we ultimately put the drum set that we bought, where both my brother and I over the years were, you know, attempting to improve skills and, and see if we could actually play the drums well enough to play the drums in some sort of a, in some sort of a band that never really panned out, but he had enough space to put in a drum set and he was located in a part of the house where you could never really insulate yourself sound wise good enough for no one in the house to be inconvenienced by someone practicing the drums. But at least it was the best possible situation because he was down a longer hallway. He was positioned on top of the garage. There was a better, you know, insulation sort of a approach to that room. But the other thing was he had a hidden room. His little nook inside one of his closets was so well hidden, in fact, that it could have functioned brilliantly as a panic room. If you were trying to hide from somebody who was doing a home invasion or something, this was your best bet at somehow being undetected as being home and available for any sort of violence. Now, it wasn't as good as the kind of panic rooms that you see in the movies, where we there was no closed-caption TV. There wasn't even air conditioning in there. It would be a, a stifling and a very difficult experience to have to hide in that room for very long. And you could get lost and forgotten in there, too, if you do, dozed off or lost consciousness. So even when we were relatively younger, because my little sister was in elementary school when we moved into this house, there was kind of an agreement that any game of hide-and-go-seek with us or with younger friends or relatives couldn't include that space. That was too dangerous of a space. And in some ways, if it was included in the game, almost too obvious of a space, it was that well hidden. Just opening up his closet and looking at um, suits and um, work clothes and marching band uniforms, whatever he might have had in there, you couldn't see that there was another panel. You couldn't see that through that panel there was a nook with a hidden room. It actually would have been an excellent space to you know, wait out a tornado, uh, except the fact that it was on the upper floor, and it was really where two corners of the house met on a 90-degree angle. For us, the tornado room was under the stairs. A little closet, again, same size really as this one, truth be known. Big enough to wait out a storm, though, and safer than any other part of the house, and that there was no basement available, and this was underneath the stairs, very centrally located. The other interesting bedroom occupied by my younger sister, oddly had more closet space than what we gave to my older sister, and probably comparable closet space to the walk-in closet that my parents had in the master bedroom suite. This closet was big enough that there were actually two doors, two ways to enter into the closet, and not sliding panel doors, but actually the same kind of door that was on the bedroom, where you could open it up. You needed an overhead light with a pull string to see what was going on inside the closet, because there was room for that that much clothing. So the plus side is that my little sister never had to worry about space for clothes, but the downside was that this closet was so useful that it wasn't all hers. So a lot of the clothing in the closet was occupied by changes in season and old winter coats and stuff of that nature. She had to share the space because the space was just that good. 
But the other door that went into the other side of her closet, similar situation, drawstring lighting, plenty of room for, uh, you know, actually more than enough room for a junior high school girl to store clothing. There was another door in there, though. So you walk into one door, you're standing inside a walk-in closet, there's another door. You open up that door, and then you're in this sort of very large, much larger than the space underneath the stairs, nook of sorts. It was big enough that you could have put a, a small table with some chairs and if you were an elementary school girl, served tea with your stuffed animals in there. But we also put some cabinets in there, and that's where we stored a lot of books. So as books would hand me down from older siblings to younger siblings, the children's books would end up in the room inside her closet, which makes sense. She was the youngest. She was going to be the last stop for some of those children's books. So that home holds powerful memories to me because of the interesting hidden spaces that it had. And I only bring up a little nostalgia about a childhood home to say that, on the one hand, the home is not my family. We shouldn't confuse those two concepts any more than we should confuse the building with the church. But on the other hand, I have powerful memories of my family that are directly associated with that home. If some strange and bizarre set of events were to place me inside that house now, decades after we lived there, and decades since we've even been inside to visit, you know, parents, you know, after moving away to go to college or to get married, it's been so long that it would be a strange experience to even conceive being in the house. But I guarantee that if I were upstairs and making the first right at the top of the stairs, no matter what anybody who was showing me this home had to say about it, I would know that I was standing in my little sister's bedroom, the home providing some identity around the family and the family relationships. It was the same in most of the churches that I've attended, where I've got a relationship with the building that, while independent from the church and certainly not synonymous with the church, is also meaningful. The classroom in elementary school in that church, church that my wife and I were later married in, as a matter of fact, uh, the classroom that I went to fifth and sixth grade Sunday school in, really one of my favorite classrooms of all time. When I think of what should a Sunday school look like, that's what a Sunday school classroom should look like. That's what hops into my mind. And I don't know whether there's anything special about it other than when I finally clicked with Sunday school and found that I enjoyed it and liked being there and learned a lot when I was there, that was the decor. That was the situation. And basically, it was a circle of chairs with lots of resources. There were flip charts and whiteboards and stuff like that. And arts and crafts available in bins. That room also had another sort of hidden room, that there must have been some access to the heating, venting, air conditioning uh, there, places where filters could be changed, because inside that classroom there was another door, and inside that door was some of the you know air conditioning facilities, some of the heating and venting for the air conditioning. And even behind that there was another nook, and I always thought to myself, you know, this must be the right kind of place when you're old enough to date and you've got a girlfriend, if you wanted some total privacy inside this church building, this is a good hide-and-go-seek spot. This is a good place to be alone with somebody that you really care about, that you have an intimate feeling toward. And even as young as maybe sixth grade, those thoughts, not yet in action in my mind, but those thoughts were in my mind. And earlier in this show, describing what it might mean to have a part of the church that used to be open and accessible to the outside world getting locked down, the first thing I think of is that church, which is essentially is the church I went to in elementary school and the very, very early part of junior high school. But that fellowship hall was meaningful to me 
Because when we made the transition from one side of the town to the other, there was a little bit of overlap. The youth group was part of a, you know, sort of what we might today call a praise worship service or a contemporary worship service on Sunday evening. And during that first summer when we were, you know, hadn't yet started school, I hadn't met any new school friends, we would go to the new church that we were visiting and thinking about joining on Sunday mornings. But on Sunday evenings, I would go to the other side of town. That didn't just stop at the end of, end of the summer, which might have been the plan for there to be a good, clean break from one church to the other church and the school year would signal it. Instead, I kept going even into the fall whenever I could get a ride because I was too young to drive because I wasn't doing very well socially in the new school. I was having trouble. I was finding myself the victim of, to a certain degree, what we would call bullying. And the places that I raised those concerns in prayer, the pastors that I asked for help with those particular situations, weren't these these new youth leaders and pastors that I barely knew. It was the people that I'd known for all those years. Those prayers were raised in that fellowship hall in that other church. I've got a relationship with that other church, and the memories are tied to the rooms and to the building. So never let me say that the church is, in some ways, never in any way possibly considered to be part of the facilities itself, or that the facilities themselves shouldn't be protected and are not important. But that's not the church. You could do the church by having fellowship with a specific set of people, roaming from place to place, like the early disciples did. You know, their church was not located in Galilee. They spent as much time in fellowship, in worship, and in what we would now call Christian education, all over the region of Israel and Judea. They weren't isolated to a particular home base location. So once we kind of acknowledge that the church is not a building, and although the traditions are important and the traditions call into mind memories that are tied to the building, that's a separate thing altogether. It comes back to what does it take to form a relationship with a new church, and how does that go? Well, the first thing we did was we said, hey, let's let's include some United Methodist churches in our search. So in the first nine or ten weeks of this process, we've been to three different United Methodist churches, including today, the day that I'm recording. Only one of them have I spent any significant time in before. So a lot of these are United Methodist churches that we're unfamiliar with and that we're trying to decide whether we want to invest the time to get familiar with them. And one of the things that has come to me is this church search has largely been a parking lot to sanctuary sort of situation. Today, we paused for a little bit so that the women and the family could use the restroom. They found the restrooms. I don't believe I've found the restrooms in any of the churches that we've been to all summer long. I've instead waited until after church when we either got home or we got to a restaurant, took care of that need there. Even if it's a public facility, it wasn't the public facility provided by the church. I don't know why that is. I'm not even going to imply that that's strange. It's just that I know that I've been attending worship for several weeks now in a variety of different churches where I don't know the lay of the land. I don't know the geography. If somebody said, hey, we're going to gather in such and such a classroom or in the parlor, or for that matter, even in the church office, I don't know that I would be able to find the church office from where I was standing at the time that conversation might have taken place. And that's very strange because for well over a decade, 
I've known the lay of the land of the church I attended so well that I probably could have navigated myself from place to place without looking. I'm not volunteering to take a trip in the dark or with a blindfold, but I knew the lay of the land that well. Maybe not quite as well as I understood the lay of the land of that church that I went to for all those years in elementary school. But then again, that also had the advantage of being the only church that I knew. Right now, I'm kind of you know, thinking through, where are we attending? What, where are we going to go next Sunday? Is sort of a question that's on my mind in this process of walking the earth. And I know that no matter where I pick, it's going to be a place where I only understand a small piece of the geography. I don't want to call this out as a concern. It's not a problem. It's a normal part of the process. But this process is foreign enough to me that even these little parts are sort of strange. Now, I've been in several sanctuaries, as I've mentioned, and um, the function and the form of them have been all pretty solid. In one case, one of the United Methodist churches, the worship service we've chosen to attend doesn't meet in the sanctuary at all. It meets inside a fellowship hall. That's different for me. I don't know how comfortable I would be with that. That's one of the things with this particular church that I'm trying to get my head around, trying to get used to. The church we've attended most here lately is an evangelical Lutheran church. And their layout is very interesting in that it's, it's much more wide than deep, and it's more bright. Instead of having stained glass on every available open window, there's a lot of natural light shining in. And it makes for a very bright room and a very bright worship experience, as opposed to what can sometimes be an architecturally imposed somber mood or sort of dark and reverent experience. I can understand why some people might not like that. Some people might prefer a more solemn form of worship. But I've actually been quite taken by the open format, the sort of the open floor and the brightness of that one Lutheran church as just being standing out for being different. Now, it's not anywhere near as bright as the kind of light shining into what's essentially a gymnasium at the Methodist church we've gone to where the contemporary service doesn't meet in the sanctuary. Now, there's there's a form to that. There's a reason for that. The Lutheran church being broad enough has enough room on either side of the altar for one side to actually have a full pipe organ and several pews angled off for a full choir, while there's still the same amount of space on the other side of the altar that provides plenty of room for a music stage and a full praise band to perform. Multiple guitarists, keyboard, uh, bass, extra singers, drum set, the whole nine yards. Because of that setup, though, you have to have a church that is equipped to handle either a complete change, a complete breakdown of the stage between worship services on a Sunday, or have the room to accommodate both of them at all times. Now, ironically, the church that I left, I believe had enough space to pull that off, certainly could have accommodated having a, a shift in format from one you know, sort of lineup being primarily a choir and the other sort of lineup being primarily a band. That just wasn't something the church was interested in accommodating. This other church we've recently visited, the reason they've got that one worship service set aside in a fellowship hall, and again, essentially in a gymnasium, is because their sanctuary is very narrow, and they simply don't have the room or the room behind the altar to store any sort of change of scene. So the question is, I feel passionately that the church is not a building. I feel passionately that people can worship anywhere. But it is a little bit different to know that the worship service you're planning to attend 
will either never or almost never be inside the sanctuary. That's that's a little different. It's something I have to try to get my mind around because I do value reverential spaces. I just don't confuse the reverential spaces themselves with being equivalent to the church. And I think the answer to that is pretty clear. And the danger of getting it wrong has become, here in the last couple of years, equally clear to me. If you are led, feel free to join me in prayer as we wrap up this episode of Walk the Earth. Lord Jesus, you have demonstrated through your example that church is wherever two or three of us gather in your name. And church can be as big as a crowd of thousands of people. It doesn't have to be in a building. certainly doesn't have to be in a temple. It can be indoors. And perhaps it can just as easily be outdoors. Because the elements of worship are not necessarily tied to something that we might describe as decoration. But Jesus, I need help getting comfortable with what it means to consider not having the decoration at all. It is one thing in my mind to not choose to worship inside the sanctuary. It's a different thing to think of not having a sanctuary to worship within. And so I'm face to face with some of the conflicts where there's a potential hypocrisy that I need to divest myself of. I need to confess it for the sin that it is because it's so easy to judge people who have a great deal of passion about a building that their hard-earned money helped create and a building that they've had a relationship maintaining and learning and worshiping in for years and perhaps even decades. I could, I can't be too judgmental of those people without confessing the sinfulness of that when I myself know that in the process of looking for a new church home, the home aspect of that does imply a building. So help to strip away any bias that I've got here. Lord, help me to find the right way to worship you in spirit and truth, knowing that spirit and truth doesn't necessarily have anything to do with brick and mortar. Amen. What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. But water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. You shouldn't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions.
Our next question will be whether a sermon is fundamentally different from the sharing of word and witness. Thanks for listening.